You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. Man has established himself as supreme and insists that he alone is able. Even within the so-called followers of Christ, there is this attitude that we have the capacity to achieve meritous standing with God. We exhibit the attitude of the disciples in our text today, declaring, We are able. Join us in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 52, as the pastor delivers the sermon, We are able. Verse 35 this morning. So I've been dwelling on the American spirit of the past. You know, the American spirit of the past has been that individuals have liberty granted to them by who? By God. And this same spirit has believed in hard work, individual achievement, by the gracious hand of God. Today, this spirit is under attack. And it's morphed into one of two things. One being that the government grants permission as it knows best for you and handouts and cooperation now trump hard work and individual achievement. The other idea that it seems like this spirit has morphed into is that liberty remains, but liberty is absent from God. And hard work and individual accomplishment comes through personal effort apart from the gracious hand of God. So in other words, both distortions of this spirit that Americans have had, both distortions have something in common. We've departed from those who came to this land, those who have established this nation. We've decimated that spirit by the removal and recognition of the sovereign hand of God. You see, that's the key. And now we have liberty without God, accomplishment without His grace. That, or we're dependent upon someone or something else. Namely, it tends to be our government, ourselves. The influence of evolutionary thought has been chief in our fall into humanism. Man has established himself as supreme, and insist that he alone is able. Man alone is able. And even with the so-called followers of Christ, there's this attitude that we somehow have a capacity within ourselves to achieve this meritorious standing before God. And in doing so, we exhibit the attitude that disciples of our text today, the same attitude that they have, where they declare, we are able. We are able. Mark chapter 10, look with me in verse 35. Then James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now look at this in verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. We are able. 
Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, that is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John, and calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not that way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. Now, last week we focused on a common thread that tied two stories together. One being the story we read this morning, where James and John come to Christ and make this request. The other was the story of the healing of blind Bartimaeus. And we'll talk about that story more in depth next week. Today we're going to focus on the first of the two stories. But they had this common question between the two stories, this common thread. It's found in verse 36 of our text, but it's also found in verse 51 of the story we'll look at next week. In both cases, Jesus asked the same question, what do you want me to do for you? And we made a comparison last week and some contrast between those two events and the answer to that question. But remember... As we've been studying through Mark, we see here in chapter 10 that Jesus is now on this determined course for Jerusalem. His last time to head toward Jerusalem. And he was so determined, he was so resolute, you remember, that his disciples were frightened by what they saw. They were amazed. He was resolute as he marched toward that mocking, scourging, crucifixion, ultimate resurrection that would take place. And here it was in this setting of Jesus marching to his death that he's confronted with this question by means of James and John's mother. Matthew chapter 20, if you want to go back and read that for reference, you'll find in that account that it's the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who make this request to Christ. Christ says, what what is it you want me to do? What do you want me to grant? And she asked for her two sons to sit on his right and left. And in Mark, we see the sons asking. There's no conflict between these two passages whatsoever. The sons were asking by means of their mother. And obviously, Jesus addresses now the answer specifically to those disciples of whom it's being requested that they sit on his right and left hand when he comes in his glory. So it's in this setting now. With Christ marching resolutely toward Calvary, that this selfish request comes before him to do something for them. So we're going to examine this first of two stories a little bit closer today. And as we do so, I want us to see how this attitude of we are able, how this permeates this entire encounter that we see here in Mark 10 verses 35 through 45. It's the attitude that threatens to obscure the gospel understanding, even in us today. It's that same barrier, that same roadblock that keeps us from understanding clearly the gospel. The idea somehow that we are able. So we see this attitude, first of all, evident in their desires. We talked about this a bit last week, but notice how this This attitude of we are able is so evident in the desire of these two disciples, James and John. In verse 35, it says that James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he says to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Now in their desire here, we see... These disciples do acknowledge a need for Christ. There's something that they need Christ or want Christ rather to do for them. They understand it's something they can't necessarily do for themselves. It's going to be up to him to grant this. So they acknowledge a need for him 
That acknowledgement is present in the very fact that they ask the question. It's just like when one of our children come and ask us for something, they know that we have the power within us to grant their request. That's why they're there asking, right? But oftentimes, the way that our child asks us for something is not according to our terms, but according to their terms. And this is exactly what these disciples are doing. They acknowledge their need for Christ, but on their own terms. Notice it in their statement in verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We need you to do something, but it starts with this we want. This is our desire. We're not asking about your desire. We're talking about our desires. We want. We want you to do what? We want you to do whatever we ask of you. We're not asking that you do whatever you will. We're asking you to bend to our will. Do something, but do it on our terms. Do it the way we want. Do what we ask. And what do they ask for? They want the glory. They want their recognition, the prestige, and the place of honor. Give us a place of honor, they say. So they acknowledge their need for Christ, yet it's on their own terms. And this is how some think about salvation even today. Oh, I'll come to Christ, but I'll come on my own terms. I'll come the way I want. I'll only give up what I want to give up. I'll only cease from the sin that I want to cease from. I'll only take the amount of Christ that I want to take. And we don't understand it doesn't work that way. It's all or none. It's repentant or unrepentant. It's Christ or it's nothing. And yet, we make our demands. Oh yeah, I want that salvation. I want that home in heaven. I want all the good stuff that comes with being a Christian. As long as it doesn't shake me out of the things I want to hold on to. As long as it can come under my own terms. I'll dictate the terms of my salvation. And this is how sometimes as believers we even approach our prayer life, don't we? Sometimes we approach our prayer life as if it's a bargaining chip. We sit down and talk with God. And, and try to work out a deal with him. God, if you'll do this, then I'll do that. And, and then we, and then the, the struggle begins, right? And then the requests begin and the bargaining happens. Oftentimes we want Christ to do something, but it's what we want in the way we want, in the time we want it. In other words, do it, but do it on my terms. And that's what the disciples were displaying with their request. They not only acknowledged this need for Christ, but on their own terms, but they also acknowledged that Christ was king. At the same time, they wanted to share in the glory. Notice again, they said in verse 37, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. They understood that Christ was to be established as king. They understood that that was his place. In fact, here they don't ask to to be king in his stead. They just want to share some of the spotlight. They want to have some of the glory. They want to be in places of prominence in his kingdom above all others. And so we see the selfishness that comes in their request. They were wanting that place of honor. You know, sometimes our testimony... I've noticed is much like this. Our testimony can sound more like bragging on us than it does bragging on Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? Well, I did this and I did that. And then I believed. And I, I, I. Listen, if we are in Christ, that testimony is not I, I, I. That testimony is Christ and Christ alone. 
I was incapable, but look what Christ did. I could do nothing. Look at what Christ did. See, to him be the glory, not to me be the glory. We might be okay in our life with Christ being king, but only as long as we feel like we get a say. As long as we get some input, that's okay. That's not how Christ's kingship works. When we recognize his lordship, we submit fully to him. Someone has said if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. You've heard that, right? If he is Lord, then that demands full submission. Full submission to my life in every single area, nothing withheld. Because he's king. He is Lord. And that's the question I would pose to you this morning. Is he Lord or is he not? Is he king or is he not? And is he Lord of all? Or is he not? This is why we are commanded to go and make disciples of the nations. They need to learn. They need to understand that he is sovereign. He is supreme. He is over all. And he is calling for all of us to submit to his rule and his reign because he alone is king. Nations must submit. States must submit. Counties must submit. Churches must submit. Families must submit. You and I must submit because he is king and Lord of all. He is supreme over everything. Some get wrapped around the axle sometime about this separation of church and state. We're not talking about church and state. We're talking about the Lord above the church. He's above the church. He's above the state. He's above the family. He's above them all. There are three spheres. Now I'm going to depart a little bit from the message. There's three spheres that God has ordained for us to operate in our society. Number one is the family. Number two is the church. Number three is the state. Each of these have their own responsibilities. The state specifically has the responsibility to wield the sword. But here's what we fail to to realize. It's that middle one, the church, that has that influence over the sphere of the family and the sphere of the state. It's the church that's that guiding influence. It's the church that says, thus saith the Lord. Because understand, who ordained all three of those spheres? God ordained it. There's authority in the family, there's authority in the church, and there's authority in the state. But every bit of authority that ever exists is derived from the ultimate authority, which is God. Every bit of authority that we have is delegated by him and therefore we are answerable to him and can only operate within the authority that he delegates to us. Is that clear? The family has a responsibility before God. The church has a responsibility before God. And contrary to popular belief in our society today, the state has an obligation before God. And our rulers, our leaders are accountable to that same God. And we have a responsibility, Christian, to be a voice to that state. To speak, thus saith the Lord to them. To declare what God's law is that they are entrusted with upholding. Recognizing his lordship over all realms of this world. You see, this we are able belief system was evident in the desires of the disciples. We see that in the question that they ask. But secondly, notice this belief system of we are able is evident in the in the declaration of the disciples. In their declaration, notice what they say in response to Christ. In verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. You shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on the right or my left, that is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the disciples make this declaration to Christ that we are able, we see that in that declaration, they are limited in their knowledge. They're limited in their knowledge. They don't understand what they're even asking or what they're saying. Jesus points that out in verse number 38. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. In other words, you don't have all knowledge. God alone is supreme. God alone is omniscient. And you're asking something in your limited knowledge. You're asking something when you don't even really know what you're asking here. In fact, oftentimes we don't know how to ask God for things. You ever found yourself in the place where you knew you didn't know how to ask God for something? You ever found yourself a place in life where you didn't really know what to ask Him to do? You just knew you needed Him to do something. Sometimes, though, we get very specific in our request, but don't even realize what we're saying. We don't even know what we're asking. Sometimes we think we know best and we think we know what God needs to do. And so we say, God, here's what you need to do. Now do it. And he says, you don't know what you're asking. You're limited in your knowledge. But thank God he helps us in those times. Romans chapter 8 verse 26 tells us that in the same way, the spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we would, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I'm thankful that even in my ability to know and understand and ask, that God's grace is present even there. Aren't you thankful for that? It's even in those times that His Spirit intercedes for us. They were limited in their knowledge, but they were also limited and their identification with Christ. Jesus had asked them in verse 38 if they were able to drink the cup that he would drink or be baptized with the baptism with which he would be baptized. And in verse 39, they respond that they are able. So Jesus acknowledges in verse 39, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. They will follow Christ in a certain way, but only to a certain point. They're limited in that because what they will do and what they will endure will not accomplish the same thing that Christ do doing this, this will accomplish. They will die, they will suffer, but their dying and their suffering is not going to accomplish what the dying and suffering of Jesus Christ is going to accomplish. So they will follow after him in a way, but it will not be to the same ultimate effect. I want you to look at a couple of passages of Scripture real quick. In Acts chapter 12 and verse number 2, you find exactly that the disciples do what Jesus said they would do. We see that they follow in this cup and in this baptism. Now remember, who are the two disciples who make this request? Who are the two disciples that Jesus is addressing? I'll let you tell me. You remember? James and who? James and John, these two brothers. Now, Acts chapter 12, verse number 2. It's talking about, well, let's back up to verse 1. Acts 12, 1. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to harm them. And he had who? Who do you have? James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. What happened to James because of his faith and his followership of Jesus Christ? He's put to death. He followed the Lord in death. Over in the book of Revelation, in chapter number 1, Revelation chapter 1, last book in your Bible there, and verse number 9. Somebody want to tell me who wrote 
The book of Revelation, under God's Holy Spirit. Yep, he tells you there in verse number 9. I, John, your brother and fellow taker, partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the witness of Jesus. John says, I'm here in exile on this island writing. Why? For the sake of the word of Christ, because I followed him. Both of these brothers would go through suffering, through death. They would follow their Lord into such, though not with the same accomplishment. Though they would suffer and though they would die, this is not what earned them merit with the Father. This did not raise their standing. This did not cause them to therefore be able to sit on the right or the left in glory. This was not about their accomplishments or their work. Though they would do great things. Jesus refers to the cup that he drinks. Now this is before the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you remember what he said there. Matthew 26, 39 tells us, And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this what pass from me? What does he say? This cup, right? Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What is that cup referencing? It's referencing the death that he's about to die. Jesus asked them, even ahead of this garden prayer, he asked them, Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you go through death for this cause like I'm going to go through death for this cause? And they will. But then he talks about the baptism with which they'll be baptized. Now, we understand what water baptism is for, right? Water baptism is our identification with our Lord Jesus Christ. When we're baptized in water, we're taking that identity. It's a declaration that's being made that says, I recognize this is my Savior and my Lord. I'm counted as one of His. I'm identifying with Him. And just like He died and was buried and rose again, I've died. I'm no longer who I was. I'm new in Him. I'm identifying with Him and His death, burial, resurrection. There's an identification there. Well, there's a baptism that His disciples would go through And Jesus has told us as disciples, we'll go through this same identification with him. And that is suffering and tribulation. Remember what we saw in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9 that John said he was a fellow partaker in with these other believers in persecution, in tribulation, in this suffering for the word of God. That's an identification with their Savior, Jesus Christ, who also suffered and suffered innocently. 1 Peter 4.13 tells us, But to the degree you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. We're sharing in His suffering. We're identifying with Him when we suffer for His name. James and John would follow their Savior, but it would not gain them this special seat, nor would it accomplish what Jesus would in His suffering and death, because their ability was indeed limited. We are called today to identify with Christ in baptism. And we're called to identify with Him in suffering. But this is not an accomplishment of our flesh. It's an accomplishment of God's grace. It's not about self-glorification, but it's to the glory of God alone. So we see that they were limited when they made this declaration in their knowledge and in their identification with Christ. But they were also showing that they were limited in their understanding of his providence. In verse 40, notice how Jesus responds when he's told them that they'll be baptized and that they will drink the cup that he drinks. Verse 40, he says, but to sit on my right or my left. Now, he's distinguishing these two things. Okay, you're going to follow me in the cup. You're going to follow me in the baptism. But this request that you've had about being on my right and my left, this is a different matter. Verse 40, but it is for those for whom have achieved it. Anybody read that? It's not what it said, did it? But it is for those 
for whom it has been prepared. Who prepared it? Father prepared it. That's why Jesus said it's not mine to give. So here in this passage, we see the relationship of the Trinity on display. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Just as the Father spoke at the baptism of Christ, and we see Father, Son, Spirit all present at the same time. And the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. Hear you Him. Listen to Him. This is the Father speaking of the Son whom He has sent. You remember when the Son then goes into the garden and He begins to pray? What is His prayer? He's praying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so you see that the three are one, and yet they're very distinct, aren't they? This is the complexity of the Trinity. But the Father has a role where the Son has a role. And here we see the Son in submission to the will of the Father. And what an example that is for us. This determination of who is going to sit on the right or on the left, understand Jesus says it's already been prepared. This was already a settled, settled matter even before the existence of James and John. Isn't that an amazing thing? What does that tell us? That this preparation is totally absent any human merit. It was not because of how good James or John were or were going to be, but based solely on the providence of God. We saw in Romans 9 last week, what shall we say then? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. I want to show you a couple of other passages real quick. Turn with me. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This is important stuff. Most of us know verse 28 by heart. I don't know if we understand the real meaning of it, but we we know the verse. We can quote it. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to whose purpose? His purpose, right? His purpose, his calling. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And the answer is, who did it all? He did it. Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Just going to give you a couple more, okay? And verse number 4. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4. I could probably back up to verse 3. We'll do that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him. When? Before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. And He graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. One more, Second Timothy chapter number 1. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9. Who has saved us, called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus, now watch this, from all eternity. From all eternity. Again and again we see the evidence the providence, the sovereignty of God. 
His will, His plan, His decrees. From the beginning, before the foundation of the world. What an amazing thing. The providence and sovereignty of God, though, is not exclusive to just our salvation, as we see maybe specifically in these verses, but to all of history. It extends just, it extends beyond just our individual salvation, but it extends to the course of the entire world, the entire universe, all that exists. God's purpose and plan for that was before it ever began. And God is executing those decrees as we read from the psalm this morning. He's executing them perfectly to their completion. And I've got news for you guys. It doesn't really matter in the end what you or what I do. We will not stop the plan of God. We aren't sovereign. We're not all powerful. He is carrying out His plan to its fulfillment for His glory, His glory alone. You know, this is the reason for absolute faith. This is the reason for boldness, for moving through this world that's full of noise. This is the reason we don't fear. This is the reason we can take stands that are unpopular. This is the reason why. We can be resolute, just like Christ was. Remember, as He was walking on that road to Jerusalem, He was so determined, so resolute, that His disciples were afraid of it. I'm going to tell you what, guys. When you believe this doctrine of the sovereignty of God, and you act upon it, when you are so confident that God is in control, that you have no fear, you will scare people slapped to death. They'll be absolutely afraid of you. You know why? Because a person who truly believes that God is in control, who has no fear, they're unstoppable, they're uncontrollable, they're uncomfortable. This is the reason we can be so resolute. Because I know it's not upon me. I know it's not about my plan and my will and my way and my power. I know that God has got this just fine. He's in control. He's still on the throne. And I'm not going to move him off of it. His will and his plan will be accomplished. And however he wants to use me in that, he can do so because he's the one who's sovereign. That's a liberating thing. It really is. It's a freeing thing. It's how you can be resolute. Because you know that Yahweh reigns supreme and He's executing His decrees without fail. All right, third and final thing. We've seen this idea, this belief system that we are able, evidenced by the disciples' desire, evidenced by their declaration, but now we're going to see it evidenced in Christ's demonstration. Look at what he says, verse 41 of our text, Mark chapter 10. After hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servants, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus demonstrates here for us a distinction between how the world operates and how his followers operate. And then he's going to give us the ultimate demonstration of himself. He said, I'm going to show you what this really is like and what this really means. Now, how does the world operate? How the world operates is evidenced by James and John's original request. They were putting that on full display when they asked for those places of honor on the right and on the left when Christ come in his glory. The world operates this way. Look at verse 41. The disciples show this again. 
After hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. How does the world operate? With envy and anger. The disciples, when they see what James and John have requested, what happened to them? They got angry. They were upset with them. Maybe they're a little bit jealous. Maybe they wish they could have asked it for themselves. What did they see going on here? They saw the power struggle, didn't they? They saw these other guys that are amongst us, that these other guys amongst us want to be above us. They want to rule over us. They want to have honor above us. We don't like that. They were angry. That's the way the world operates, right? Envy. Anger. But notice also how the world operates. Jesus tells us in verse 42 how this system works. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, in other words, the world, that's what he's referring to, the system in which we live, the heathen, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. He says, here's how the world system operates. Men like authority. They like power. In this world system, there's this superiority amongst some. We have the elites, the authoritarians, the ones who know best. I'm smarter than you. I know better than you. So you need to listen and do what I tell you to do. We saw this evidenced when COVID became a thing. We saw it down to the local levels. I mean, it wasn't just the president. I mean, we we saw these county mayors and city mayors. All of a sudden, they became these supreme rulers. Do you notice that? And they were able now to tell everybody what was essential and what was not essential. They would tell you where you could go and where you couldn't go, who could work, who couldn't work, what to put over your face, what to put in your body. They were supreme. They had the authority. They knew best. You're ignorant, right? That's how the world system operates. We see it today with gun laws for our own good, of course, right? When we deny your constitutional right to assemble, ah, we know best. We know best. It's for your own good. We see those drunk on power, self-righteous in their justification for their actions, no matter how sincere they might be in that sometimes. That's what Jesus is alluding to actually here in verse 42. He says that's how the world operates. People want to get in places of authority and power and they want to domineer over everybody else. They want to rule supreme. That's how it works in the world system. Fight your way to the top so that you can be on top so that everybody can be under your feet. Now Jesus contrasts that with how it works in his system. See, that's the world system. How does it work as a follower of Christ? Look at what he says in verse 43. But it is not this way among you. There's that contrast, right? That's how the heathen live. That's not how you live. How do you live? But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. We read this morning, the great example of Christ as he washed the feet of his disciples. The greatest among them was the one on his knees before him, washing their dirty feet, doing the dirty job. Christ was without question the greatest among them. Was there any question about that? Did anybody deny that? Certainly Christ was the greatest among them all. And yet, it wasn't from his exercises of authority, was it? You don't find Christ going around saying, now you do understand I'm the greatest, right? I expect for you guys to fall in line here, right? That that wasn't the way he operated. 
Everyone knew he was the greatest. But he was also the greatest servant. He gave himself for his disciples and ultimately gave himself for us. You know, this is an example that that God brings home to me in my personal life, even as a father and as a husband, that God has put me in a role of authority. I have authority in my home. But you know what happens in the flesh? What do we do? We act like the world system. We want to wield our authority, demonstrate our authority, and demand our authority. And how does it work in Christ's kingdom? I, the father, the husband, should be servant. It doesn't make me any less an authority when I serve. Did Christ become any less great when he served? Did he become any less the one in authority when he served? Not at all. Quite the opposite. So the servant king gave us a unique display. Look at what he says in verse 45. For even the Son of Man, even me, Jesus says, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Go home and read Philippians chapter 2 today, and you'll be reminded of all that Christ laid aside to show us that ultimate example of servanthood. As he came like as we are and dwelt among us. To do what? He told us there in verse 45, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And that term ransom is interesting. It indicates that Christ paid some type of price. And there's an erroneous doctrine out there that's been throughout history where people think that somehow it's like the devil had us all held captive. And he was demanding a ransom payment. And so Christ paid the devil off to get us out from under our bondage. That's kind of the idea. That's not at all what this ransom is referring to. This is a price paid not to the devil, but to the father. You see, it wasn't that the devil was holding us hostage. It's that our sin had indebted us to God's justice and God's wrath. There was a payment demanded for our sin, not from the devil, but we had sinned against our creator God. Because we had sinned, there's a payment. The wages of sin, the payment for sin is what? Death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, the one who paid the price, the one who ransomed us. It was Christ who bore this in himself, in our place. This is what we refer to as the substitutionary atonement. He stood in our stead. He took what belonged to us, paid the price that we owed. That's what Christ did. The greatest among us took that role, took our place, paid the price. 1 Timothy 2.6 says, Who gave himself as a ransom for all. Titus 2.14, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 7 says, You have been bought with a price. You see, we can only claim Christ this morning. Not our merit, but his atoning work alone. Have you trusted him and his work? Are you trusting only in his merit? You see, the disciples' attitude of we are able, like ours, was evident in their desire. It was evident in their declaration. But it was completely refuted in Christ's demonstration. No, we are not able But the good news is, Christ is able. Amen? Let's bow together. Father, we thank you this morning for our Savior Jesus Christ.
doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you, God, that he paid that ransom for us, that he stood in our stead, that your justice, that your, your wrath was poured out upon him, that he took what belonged to us, and he paid our debt. One that he was completely innocent of. God, because of that, we stand not saying we are able, we are not capable. We stand in Christ and Christ alone. We thank you for his sacrifice for us. Forgive us, Father, where we demand our way. We expect you to submit to our terms. We make silly requests in our limited understanding and knowledge. We thank you that even in those times that you are merciful to us, and that you provide for us and you intercede for us. Father, you are good in spite of our failures, in spite of our sin. Father, we thank you for the confidence that we have in knowing that you indeed are sovereign Lord. Help us to be careful to share that good news with the world that needs to understand. I pray that you would guide us through the remainder of our time of worship today to your honor and glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.